It's not providing digestible carbohydrate, but it may be causing some other problem somewhere else that is causing a stress response that elevates blood glucose. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high-performance mind, body, and lifestyle. Hi, friends. If you have been struggling with blood sugar issues, autoimmune issues, maybe you're somebody who has celiac disease, for example, then you're going to really dig this episode because I'm sitting down with Rob Wolf, who's a former research biochemist and two times New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Wired to Eat is an absolutely brilliant book. They're both brilliant books, um, but one regularly used by practitioners like myself. And he's also co-authored um, a rec- another recent book called Sacred Cow which explains why well-raised meat is actually good for us and good for the planet. And he's transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, his books and his seminars. And he's known for his direct approach and ability to really distill and synthesize information to make the, the complicated stuff easier to understand and he definitely does that in this week's episode and you're going to hear a really interesting discussion between Rob and I about both of our blood sugar issues and how we find it so much harder to control our blood sugar and what insights we've found from tracking it with things like CGMs and what really affects it and why some people have a harder time doing that. We also dive into autoimmunity, how to eat healthily and also if you're someone who's interested in proper hydration then we talk a lot about hydration and how to remineralize and these delicious tasting uh, salts that he's got um, by Element and how to use them optimally. Uh, I tend to take the watermelon flavor into the sauna with me because I absolutely love it. So you're going to be hearing all about that on today's show. And if you are looking yourself to optimize things like gut health and blood sugar sensitivity and and metabolic flexibility, and you'd like support with that, then come over and join me and my team in my brand new membership, the Female Biohacker Collective. This month, we are all about gut health optimization, how to really optimize the integrity of your gut lining, the microbiome, how to um, have optimal diversity. Every single month, there are monthly challenges. We're about to start our 30 plant point challenge. It's a wonderful community of women and next month we're actually going to be doing metabolic flexibility and blood sugar control and so we're going to be helping and coach you if you use things like a CGM or maybe the Lumen device uh, we're going to be helping you really optimize what you're doing so you can get results I hear from so many people that are trying to use different biohacking tools and they feel like they're not really moving the needle very much and so myself and my team we're there to really help you and you can find out everything that you get included in the membership it's less than a dollar a day because we want to make it as accessible to as many people as we can at this founding member offer. So go and check it out. You can find all the details over at bit.ly forward slash female hyphen biohacker. That's bit.ly forward slash female hyphen biohacker and I would absolutely love to see you in this such a beautiful community of women Um, but now in today's show let's dive into how to optimize your nutrition for good gut health to help put into remission autoimmune issues and how to really hydrate properly as well let me introduce you without further delay to the absolutely lovely Rob Wolf. 
So I'm so excited to be joined by you today, Rob. I'm a huge fan of your work and I know that you are someone who, like me, I think, actually, is very, very carb sensitive. And I know many people listening struggle with that. Um, so first, we can dive into that today. But first of all, a very warm welcome to the show. Huge honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you and kind of you, you've got so much knowledge in this area. Um, just let's start by sharing your story. I know you've written multiple books uh, on this on these topics um, and a kind of a big proponent of going kind of lower carb, but not fully like completely keto. And you caution against athletes in particular going down that road. What took you on this journey in the first place, if you can just share? Oh, I, I'll try to keep this brief because I, I turned 50 in January. And so my, my origin story is just like stretching Getting out longer. longer and longer. But I, I had really significant health issues. Uh, I have always been interested in health and human performance. Both of my parents were unfortunately pretty sick. And, and looking back, I recognized that in addition to both of them having type 2 diabetes, my mom had this kind of interrelated cluster of autoimmune diseases, including celiac disease, which I didn't discover that until later. And I, when I was about 26, 27, became very, very ill with ulcerative colitis. I was, I was tinkering with a vegan diet at the time, which I, I don't think that that was working for me. But looking back, I did, there was not a single thing I was doing right at the time. I was in a graduate program looking at either medical school or a PhD track. Um, I was sleeping maybe three or four hours a night because you know sleep is for the week. If, you, if you're highly motivated, you can just power yeah. through and you don't really need to sleep. Um, I ended up eventually getting my vitamin D levels checked way back when and they were like 11 or 12. And so I was wow. barely above like a, a rickets deal. Um, I was just a mess. And then just uh, dietarily, I've discovered over time, uh, uh, certainly grains don't work super well for me. Dense carbohydrates don't work well. And now I'm discovering that even, um, you know, things like green salads and uncooked veggies don't work particularly well for me. And so I've, I've really kind of learned that over time. But my mother had, like I mentioned, was was quite ill, and her rheumatologist did some screening and figured out she had celiac, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and that my mom was uh, reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy. It was what the way that he characterized it. And this was uh, 1998 when I discovered this, and I was kind of sitting there thinking, I'm like, my God, if you, if one is reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy, what on earth do you eat? particularly because I was vegan at the time, you know, and so the dairy was kind of understandable, but grains and legumes, like if you pull that out of the diet, what, what would you eat? And it, I was just kind of sitting there thinking about things and this idea of a paleolithic diet kind of went through my head. I was, I was thinking, okay, grains and legumes, that's kind of agriculture. What did we eat before agriculture? We were hunter gatherers and, I don't know where the term, you know, paleolithic diet had gotten into my my brain, but it did. And I went into the house and turned on the computer and waited for the computer to boot up and then the, the dial up and and into this new search engine at that time in 1998 called Google. I put this term paleolithic diet and I found a little bit of information from Two, two sources, mainly Lauren Cordain and Art Devaney. And Art Devaney, interestingly, is the professor of economics, but he had really, he did a remarkable amount of work early on in this space. And 
What was really interesting was that they they described to a T a lot of what I was experiencing, this kind of uh, metabolic problems, you know, carbohydrate sensitivity and not really doing super well with the, the amount and types of carbohydrate that I, I was eating, was supposed to eat, you know, according to dietary guidelines. And then uh, they talked a ton about gut and autoimmune related issues. And I was so sick at the time. I'm about a... I'm five foot nine, I'm 165, 170 pounds. Um, at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis, I was about 125 or 130 pounds. So if oh, you wow. imagine like 50 pounds less of me, you know, it was- And the thing is you're very pounds. like uh, lean as it is, right? If you took another yeah, 50 like, pounds uh, off, yeah, wow. Yeah, so if you peel 50 pounds off yeah. me, it was pretty pretty dire, you know, I was, I was in terrible condition and I, I was sick enough that I thought, well, what have I got to lose, literally, because I was facing uh, a bowel resection on the one hand was some of the recommendations. And again, you know, I'm like 26, 27 years old, so not really great. I knew enough about medicine at that time that the, the bowel resection was not going to go well. Uh, immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of my life was, was not a, a great option. So. I tried this kind of low carb, what we would now call paleo keto type diet. And oddly enough, uh, an Atkins book was the the only real resource that I had at that time that was, you know, close to the bullseye on this topic. There, there were no other books really on, on this topic. And so I shifted into a lower carb diet and it was magic for me. You know, I, throughout my whole childhood, looking back, like I just would go through cycles of um, hyper and hypoglycemia. Now I, I, I recognize like I very rarely had moments where I just felt good, where I had like clear cognition. It felt like the world was happening like three, three feet outside of my I head. Heard of you. You know, did it affect just... your mood as well? Like, did you find that you oh, had absolutely. elevations and depressions of mood? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, at, at that time when I was very sick, I, I had, I had severe depression, like I probably should have been institutionalized at that. I mean, suicidal, it, it was bad. It was very, very bad. And fortunately, all of that just resolved. And I mean, it was magic for me. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe that I could feel as good as I did, you know, from depression, anxiety, all these kind of emotional things gut issues like prior to that i was just in constant agony with with the ulcerative colitis uh sleep disturbance i mean it was on and on like it, it just about every part of my life improved dramatically the interesting thing is as as monumental as the improvements were i still have issues like the the reason why i've been decently good at doing this stuff is because i'm literally the toughest person i've ever worked with, you know, like mm. my, my problems seem to be more complex than just about anybody else I, I have uh, worked with. And so it's really kept me in the fight looking at how to address both the, the metabolic side of things, like helping people to lose weight is a challenge, but there's a lot of ways that you could do that. But once you start adding in autoimmune disease and gut issues and, and complex systemic inflammatory issues, I really don't think that you one has many options other than this kind of reduced carbohydrate intake and ketosis, carnivore. You know, we, we end up going down a very specific path because you just don't, I just don't see um, 
a lot of options beyond that. And I, I don't know entirely why. I don't know if it's due to the gut microbiome, like uh, a SIBO, mm. you know, bacterial overgrowth. I'm not entirely sure why, but it definitely seems like uh, folks like me end up in kind of a metabolic autoimmune cul-de-sac, and it's difficult to get them out. Difficult. And it's just a case although, of managing it. Yeah, yeah, you really, it, 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 for me, it's a lot of work to manage it. I'm so much healthier than what I was, but I still like, I, I'm able to do a lot of stuff. Like I have a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and I'm really active with that. And I, I still train and everything, but I, I have to be pretty careful too. I don't have a ton of latitude with my, my diet and, and I have to be really on point with my, my lifestyle. Like sleep is a huge priority. I have to manage stress pretty effectively. Otherwise it'll take me down at the, the kneecaps. Whereas I think other folks are just inherently more resilient. I look resilient, but it's because I really take care of the stuff that I need to, to, to be able to function. So that was an entirely too long, um, you know, origin story, but that's kind of, you know, mm. gives a little bit of the, the texture of where I've come from and, and kind of the reason why I am still doing what I'm doing. I, I ended up uh, co-founding the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. So I was very, very early in the CrossFit scene, was able to work with elite level athletes, people from police, military, and fire. But I, I, um, my people, the folks that I really feel like I, I most benefit and I honestly derive the most joy working with are folks like me, people with complex autoimmune and, and, uh, metabolic issues that it's, they've run the gamut of, uh, uh, conventional medicine and haven't really seen the the benefit or the results that they need to, or that they, they, they would hope to experience. And then I've been able to, to help a lot of those people. Yeah. So it's uh, 23 years now of tinkering with this. And it's kind of crazy, but it, you know, it's been incredible. And uh, again, you know, the, the more like me that someone is usually the better chance I have of, of benefiting them, you know, having some insights that maybe someone else doesn't. Yeah. Because you studied it so extensively. I think I heard you saying actually on another show about how, your book Wired to Eat, you weren't expecting it, but actually it was downloaded or purchased much more by practitioners who were looking yeah. because of the depth. And if, if it's okay with you, I'd really like to explore quite a few of the topics that you've raised there, because I think it sure. will touch different people in different ways. Um, if we start first then a little bit with the with the gut issues and the ulcerative colitis, um, you, you, you opted more for a kind of ancestral paleolithic style diet. Have you found that to, to keep that at bay, you've had to completely remove grains like forever? And what about things like pulses and, and beans and like lectins? Like, what have you found with yourself and your clients there that work the best? Yeah, I'll, I'll speak mainly to myself first, I, I guess. It, it's interesting. Uh, so I definitely have celiac. So okay. wheat, rye, oats, barley, millet, like they're just kind of, I, I can't do those at all, really. Um, they will really crush me. I can do a little bit of rice. And ironically, if, if I have maybe um, 20 grams of effective carbohydrate from, from rice, I seem to be okay. If I do much larger than that, like when, when uh, Nikki and I were working on Wired to Eat, um, we did some side-by-side -side blood sugar testing and we both ate 50 grams of effective carbohydrate from rice. And uh, my, my wife, Nikki, her blood sugar barely got into the one, the 110 teens, you know, one, 115, 118. Mine was like 190. I was peri-diabetic and I felt horrible. Oh, you actually you got know. symptoms with that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. terrible. Um, 
vision change, you know, uh, 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 lethargy, fatigue, and whatnot. But it's interesting, like white rice, if, so long as I keep the dose small, or, or keep the dose appropriate, um, and I can do things like having a little bit of rice post-workout or maybe even pre-workout or something, and that'll work okay. And interestingly, it seems to digest okay. Like I, I my digestion seems fairly happy with that. Uh, different beans and, and lentils I can do okay with glycemically. So like uh, lentils, I do really well with glycemically, but I get an autoimmune reaction, like my oh, joints okay. hurt, interestingly. So that's kind of a bummer. And how quickly really would that like come lentils. on? How quickly would that come on if you have lentils? Maybe like two, a, a day and a half to two days later, you okay. know, where I've serially kind of consumed mm. it, I'll start noticing some joint inflammation. Um, this is kind of separate, but I, I uh, uh, right around the first of the year, I had a really scary autoimmune flare. It was, it was most likely rheumatoid arthritis. The blood work kind of got botched, so we weren't sure what was happening, but my, my right hand was massively involved and part of my left hand was involved. And uh, like a, an eight out of 10 pain, it was really pretty, pretty terrible. And that appears to have been precipitated by dairy which I had pulled dairy in and out over time. And um, it's just clear that that was the problem because I did an elimination with it, pulled it out 100% and uh, things resolved rather nicely. I reintroduced it and I immediately started feeling the, the problems in there. So different plant material, um, definitely dairy is problematic. I am gonna do a little experimenting on whether or not it's like the, uh, the, the A1 versus A2 uh, caseins. And so I'm going to try a little bit of like sheep and goat dairy and, and see if, if I can get away with any of that. I'm trying to think of other plants. I, I've shifted um, closer to kind of carnivore over time because I've noticed that just plant material in general is, I, I, it, it's really hit and miss what works for me. So like root okay. vegetables are okay. Um, I do better with them uh, cooked rather well versus raw. Something like and will a they green speak salad. your? Will they speak? Your, will they spike your blood sugar? Will you find like if you're having potatoes or sweet potatoes? They, 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 will, they will. spike and, you? and so all of that is within. The, it's usually about twenty grams of effective carbohydrate. It's okay. kind of my 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 limit. Your threshold, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I seem to be okay with that. So I'm just kind of mitigating the uh, the total magnitude. And if I eat it with protein, take a walk afterwards, then I seem to feel okay with that. But if you think about breakfast, lunch, dinner, it's only about 60, 70 grams of, of carbs effective. throughout the day and if I do 20 at a meal, yeah. And when you're saying like effective carbs, just so people understand, what you're doing is you're you're taking out the fiber content, right? And then just looking Correct. at the, okay, yeah. It's interesting yeah. what you're saying there about um, blood sugar, because my husband and I, we, we did our genetic panels and he wasn't sensitive to carbs. I'm highly sensitive to carbs, had similar journey to you with different mm -hmm. things. I had insulin resistance and PCOS in my in my teens and my 20s when I was practicing as a lawyer. and. It's it's something that I I'm a constant work in progress because we for example like he made a, a green juice and we were testing it with CGMs just to see like how are we both going to react so we've obviously stripped the fiber out um, I think we had a, he'd put a small amount of carrot in it it wasn't big uh, no fruit at all and then we just did like a side by side let's drink it and see what happens mm -hmm. and my blood sugar like spiked off the, the charts I didn't get symptoms right. whereas his 
like almost no reaction to it. And you think there's lots of people that think juicing is healthy, which it can be, right? And it's a good way of getting like saturin-based foods into you. But for me, it's just such a rapid spike. And then the right. fall afterwards uh, that I know that it's not something you can do. And, and it doesn't, I'm curious to what you think here, because what I've found is that still perpetuates regardless of how much I prioritize strength training to improve insulin sensitivity. Um, I don't think, and I think, you know, PCOS, obviously it's a syndrome. It's it's something you only ever really put in remission, a bit like the, the conditions you describe. Um, and I was curious what you found there to help to improve people that do have these blood sugar sensitivities uh, as to what is best for them to manage that. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it's interesting because I will read things. It's like, you know, uh, have a little cinnamon, take a walk, consume chromium, alpha lipoic acid, like there's all these kind of insulin sensitizing uh, uh, things, but the uh, it maybe works for other people, but it's never really worked for me, you know, as far as like, uh, you know, increasing my carb tolerance by 50% or something like that. Like I've just never really seen that the, the only thing that I've kind of seen somewhat like that is a very hard workout, like a a CrossFit type workout or a hard jujitsu session and having carbohydrates immediately after that, that, but that I, I kind of get that one meal, like that oh, one meal, okay, I so get, short term. You know, 50, 70 grams of carbs. But if I try to do that again, if I have cereal, you know, consumption of, of carbohydrate, then I start getting back on the carbohydrate roller coaster and I'll feel terrible. And I maybe even start getting some, some GI, you know, symptoms around that. So it's kind of like I get one, I, I can, I can get one meal that's kind of carby uh, above what my normal baseline is and really intense exercise seems to facilitate that. But I, it seems like I would need to do like three hard workouts a day, kind of CrossFit or jujitsu like to be able to, you know, consume carbohydrates with any, any, uh, you know, real frequency or, or uh, doubling the magnitude. But I personally just haven't seen huge improvements in my, my carbohydrate management. Um, we, we have this group, the healthy rebellion, where we do a, a reset three times a year and people pick different carnivore, keto, paleo, you know, the old strength train. We try to do a very comprehensive approach. And I've seen folks who will do the seven day carb test that I recommend in wired to eat. And they, they don't fare all that well the first time, you know, they have very high blood sugar levels with, with different uh, carbohydrate sources. Those folks will lean out, the, they will lose body fat, they will add some muscle, and then when they retest later, they seem to do quite well. But okay. that's not me. But yeah. so they do so, They do see an improvement on that. Yeah. That's interesting. Some people do. Yeah. Yeah, you and I, it doesn't appear that, yeah. that we are part of that group, but, it, no. you know, but some people are able to do that. And yeah. it's curious, right, because it's like working out how much is that down to the microbiome, how much is it down to genetics? Because yeah. I, when I've taken the, the combination of those type of uh, glucose disposal agents that you're talking about, so, for example, like Wade Lightheart by Optimizer's founder, he is a great product, Blood Sugar Breakthrough, and I've tested that mm -hmm. with carbohydrates 
and uh, looked at my CGM and I will get less of a spike. So if I take that and then yeah. consume the carbs, I do see a difference. Um, I've also found, and I think you cover this well in your books, is that as soon as you combine it with fats, for example, and protein, it makes a difference. So I did an experiment where each day I tried this three times. So it was like, I'm going to have a piece of sourdough toast with just a bit of butter and peanut butter. So it did have some fats, but minimal, massive. I don't know how to convert it into the US, but it went to like 10.2. It's much higher than right. it should be. Then the next day I do it, well, I'm going to have it with um, uh, eggs, for example. And then I get less of a spike. And then the following day, I'm just going to have eggs and avocado and nothing uh, at all, no sourdough at all. And then it just stays like really, really nice and steady. Right. And it's just so interesting, isn't it, when you do those experiments, how it affects you? Yeah, and I, I, it's uh, incredibly embarrassing that the U.S. is still not using metric, but I think you multiply it by 18. So like that 10.2 would be nearly 200 okay. in Oh, yeah. you know, US numbers for, for I think the juice went to like when I had the juice it was 13.7 so that wow. would be yeah. like crazy wow wow yeah. and you know it, it, a weird thing with that and it, I'm speculating on this but I think some situations for whatever reason um, people can have elevated blood glucose levels and eat a zero carbohydrate diet. Like if their stress is super mm. high, if their uh, sleep is disturbed, then we can get hepatic glucose release that can be, you know, super high in magnitude. And I think under some circumstances, for whatever reason, a particular food will register as a stress or the process of eating it or however it interfaces with the gut microbiome. It, it it produces a stress response. And so you can you can look and it's like, there's only 20 grams of carbs here. Like how do I get like a blood glucose of, of you know, 13, mm. you know, millimolar and whatnot. Well, if you get a, a stress response, then you get hepatic glucose release and you can get a, a massive um, blood glucose response. We, this was some of the early stuff that I did with, um, type one diabetics doing CrossFit where these folks would do a really hard CrossFit workout. And usually a workout will cause blood glucose levels to drop, but an exceptionally hard session will actually cause blood glucose levels to elevate at least transiently because the body is it, it re literally in a fight or flight mode. Like it, it's so stressful that the, the liver dumps glucose into the circulation and for that type one diabetic it can become really difficult to manage that because you're dealing with both the non-insulin mediated glucose disposal from the physical activity but you also have a, a, a hepatic glucose spike that you can't really control the, the total magnitude you know not the same way of just taking like glucose tablets and then you you try to chase that with like fast acting insulin or something and it becomes kind of a disaster but that was something that really, you know, made me aware that dietary carbohydrate isn't the only route to elevated blood glucose mm. levels and that we have to really respect like that stress response and hepatic glucose release under different circumstances because that can create all, all kinds of problems too. We will see folks that are eating diligently a low-carb diet, but their A1C, their average blood glucose levels, appear to still be quite elevated. And then when we start digging in and looking at what they have going on, they maybe have some uh, autoimmune issues or sleep issues or something that is causing a chronic stress response and keeping their blood glucose elevated. 
yet they're eating no dietary carbohydrate or very, very little. That's interesting. I've definitely seen that actually as well with clients and myself where you have a poor night's sleep and I think the scientific literature backs it up, doesn't it? You can be like as insulin desensitized as a type 2 diabetic after one night's poor sleep and I've seen that on mine. But I hadn't thought of taking into account what you say there is maybe actually the food itself is causing a stress response in me, which is then elevating it higher than it otherwise would, which I'm going to do some um, study of that actually on myself because that's very interesting. I think it will be interesting for people listening that maybe you're seeing that that CGM rise actually because you are intolerant to that food, right? It's causing a stress on the body. Um, Yeah. yeah. Which is... (sighs) It's kind of bedeviling too, because it's like, my God, how complex do we need to make blood glucose management? But this is just, I I think, where clinically folks will see just some really interesting stuff, some very unintuitive, you know, results. Somebody's eating low carb, they're very fastidious with it, but yet they they just have this niggling, like chronic elevation blood glucose levels. and maybe it's dairy, maybe it's it's uh, some other, you know, uh, intolerance to food like a FODMAPs or something like that. Like it's not providing digestible carbohydrate, but it may be causing some other problem somewhere else that is causing a stress response that elevates blood glucose. Yeah. Mm, which yeah. is really interesting. So I want to interrupt today's show to tell you about a powerful probiotic that I have been taking that contains a patented form of L-plantarum. It actually helps you produce more folate naturally. But the very cool thing about this is it's also in a form that is proteolytic. So it actually helps you break down protein in food as well and absorb more of those essential amino acids. So the strain that's used inside P3OM, which is the one I've been taking, has been shown to have protein digesting abilities and also anti-tumoral capability, antiviral capabilities and anti-retroviral capabilities and it can easily survive in the human digestive system which not all probiotics can. Um, It's a biologically pure culture of lactobacillus plantarum OM and this is something you can add um, with any meal to help enhance digestion. It's great if you want to add um, a couple of capsules to your protein shake for example you can just break up the capsules and add it in or take it alongside for even better results you can take it with the bioptimizers masszymes which also help to break down um, your food as well with the proteolytic enzymes it's also been shown interestingly if you take two capsules 20 minutes before each meal um, in the laboratory it's been shown to help break down gluten and stacks well with another supplement of bioptimizers called gluten guardian so there's multiple ways that you can use this you can also use it even during fasting to help improve autophagy and anti-aging and increase ampk so multiple ways you can use this probiotic p3om by my friends over at bioptimizers and you can get 10 percent off your order by using code Angela 10. Now, if you're in the US or worldwide, go to bioptimizers.com forward slash Angela. And if you're in the UK, go to bioptimizers.uk forward slash Angela. So that's bioptimizers.com forward slash Angela worldwide or bioptimizers.uk forward slash Angela. If like me, you're here in the UK and just enter coupon code Angela 10 at checkout and that will get you 10% off the P3OM, the mass signs, the gluten guardian, their amazing magnesium breakthrough and blood sugar breakthrough and a whole range of other supplements that i take i absolutely love their products so use code angela10 to grab yourself a cool 10 percent off your order 
And if you're looking at optimizing your metabolism, then you've probably seen me sharing quite a bit of posts on Instagram about metabolic flexibility and how I've been using things like meditation and breath work for relaxation purposes to actually improve my score on the Lumen device, which measures whether you're burning carbs or fats as fuel or a combination of both. And it's a powerful way that I found both for myself and with clients of improving those scores, because when we're highly stressed, our bodies naturally dump more glucose into the blood. And so we stay in carb burning mode much longer. And the issue with that is, is that it can contribute to things like insulin resistance. And in the presence of insulin, it's much, much harder for our bodies to burn fat. So that's a cool hack. Another hack that I've been sharing in my membership site, the Female Biohacker Collective, you can find out more about that over at bit.ly forward slash female hyphen biohacker. But you can also get 10% off by heading over to bit.ly forward slash get lumen. That's bit.ly forward slash get lumen and entering code Angela at checkout. And again, if you need help with that or using a CGM, we are mastering metabolic flexibility in my membership site, the Female Biohacker Collective next month. So head over to bit.ly forward slash female hyphen biohacker to check out everything there. Um, And I'd love to see you in the community. But now let's get back to the show. And actually, what's interesting as well, when you're talking about there about CrossFitters and they will see like an elevation in blood glucose, which is quite common, right? When you do a high intensity workout because you're using more glycogen effectively or you're drawing on on glucose, um, is that you see that elevation. But actually, if you look at the research as well for women, then they might think, well, I need to do these workouts and then either fast or not refuel. But actually, what I've seen is that when you then refuel with protein and carbohydrates, it helps to moderate that cortisol response. And Mm -hmm. so it's not a case Mm -hmm. of fearing the carbs. Um, Because in that scenario, right, you can tolerate them. A bit like you were saying, you can have a degree of white rice, a certain amount post-workout. Um, and I think it, it's interesting because I was listening to you on another show talk about endurance athletes who try to run a ketogenic diet and how that would be very, very different in terms of the amount of carbs they can have and still remain in ketosis. Can you kind of dive into that? Because I think it'll help a lot of people listening how they can get these these sort of amounts correct. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this was something it, it's funny because you we, we poke around trying to find guidelines, you know, well, how, how much carbs can I eat or, you know, what, what constitutes a ketogenic diet? And in general, most of what we, we find suggests that, uh, you know, less than maybe as, as few as 30 grams of carbohydrate a day, certainly fewer than 50 seems to be consistent with like a, a standard ketogenic diet. And I think that that's true when we're trying to first get somebody into a ketogenic state, kind of goose that fat adaptation, uh, somebody who's relatively sedentary, but there was a, a guy, uh, Sami Einkainen, who he was a, a kind of a tech mogul. He founded Trulia and then sold that. And then he's one of the, the folks that's involved with um, oh, the uh, type one diabetes reversal company in the United States. I'm blanking on it right now. They use a ketogenic diet, Verda Health, Verda Health. So he's one of the co-founders of Verda Health. And he is an avid cyclist, and he's he's uh, he rode a boat across the Pacific Ocean, uh, keto fueled, and you know he, he's done some kind of kind of interesting um, physical activity things. But he he's very geeked out on on uh, road biking, and he did an experiment, and it was a multi day um, 
road biking event and he was eating 150 to 200 grams of carbs a day because he just he was calculating what his total energy output was and he was just barely able to maintain that even with the addition of the carbs and he's like i i'm i'm gonna die if i don't just need my my basic energy expenditure so he put some carbs in there but what he found was that he was still at like a, a 1.5 millimolar um ketone uh, beta hydroxybutyrate level and it's because his activity level was just monumentally huge and that was something that that i was i had known that folks who were training really hard like a tour de france individual for different parts of the 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 uh the course that they are doing they they may be almost 100 percent glycogen fueled because of the, the intensity that they're doing but they also will be producing blood ketones because their body is just trying to get energy from like literally any source that they can they can get it from so it was you know i had some of these things in my head that were um maybe counterintuitive from the perspective of just like a, a textbook ketogenic diet, you know, 25 to 30 grams of, of carbs. But when I saw Sami's piece and then thinking about the fact that people working at very high work output, even if they are mainly carbohydrate fueled, they will still produce high ketone levels. I started piecing this together and that, that so much of this, the, the ketogenic state is dependent not just on carbohydrate level, but also work output. And so it becomes very, very relative to your your physical activity. And this is where I've, I've seen folks doing like CrossFit games type, type folks. Um, they may only be consuming 300 grams of carbs a day, which is maybe a half or even a third of what many people in the CrossFit scene would eat for, for that work output. But they're still in a, a ketogenic state most of the time because of the volume and the intensity of the work that they are doing. And these folks choose to do that because they feel like their, their recovery is better, um, better GI health. You know, they, they end up being carbohydrate intolerant enough that they can't do like the 900 grams of carbohydrate a day that many people will do within the CrossFit circle. So they're doing maybe a half or a third of that, but they're still in a ketogenic state because of the volume and intensity of the work that they're doing. So that, that I, yeah. I don't know if that fully answered your, yeah, it your question, it's but that's kind of how I've, I've migrated in that direction, recognizing that, that the state of ketosis is um, really subjective to the individual. You know, what is the volume and intensity of their activity? Uh, just individually, what, you know, if they're at a very uh, metabolically flexible, and whatnot, then usually going into ketosis is, is a very easy process. Like my wife, Nikki, she goes in and out of ketosis all the time. Did no change for her, no hitting a wall, no real change in her physical performance and whatnot. It's kind of amazing, but she's also really metabolically healthy. She can handle a lot of carbs or she can get by with very minimal carbs. Pretty mm. interesting. That is interesting. And actually, that's something I've observed. You know, when you look at devices like, for example, the Lumen device, where it will measure mm -hmm. whether you're in a fat-burning state, is I've noticed, despite the, the control I have to exercise in terms of blood sugar, uh, I can transition back into fat-burning state pretty easily. You know, I can have mm -hmm. a meal with carbs in the evening, go to bed, and wake up and blow a one, and I'm fat-burning, and, and that's fine. So I think it's, 
I think there is that, isn't there? Is actually ultimately you want to be metabolically flexible where you can transition between the two different types of fuels as much as you can. Uh, and it's yeah. just understanding, I think what we're realizing is people are so bio-individual and we don't know what the microbiome's really doing fully yet. Uh, everyone is so, so different. Um, I wanted to talk to you as well about minerals because uh, mm. I know this is another area of your expertise and it's an area that a lot of people don't really understand fully enough, I think, because so often we've been told by doctors, you need to avoid having too much salt in your diet. Whereas actually, you know, if you look at things like caffeine, for example, deplete sodium, and we need to get that balance of potassium, sodium, and the other minerals right. Um, I've been actually trying out the LMNT minerals, which I love. Like they're, they're, I, when, I, when I first tried them, I was thinking, okay, it came through and it was like chili and lime. Am I really going to oh, like right. this? Watermelon yeah. salt. Am I going to like this? I haven't tried the, the chocolate yet. And I really, really enjoy them. And I found that they are amazing, actually, when I go to the gym in the morning, fasted, to actually wake up, have those minerals and power a workout that way. Um, but I think I just want to kind of, Explain to people, if you can explain how remineralizing works, when people should be doing this um, and, and how much they should be taking them according to like their exercise and also how much they're sweating, right? Because if you're doing sauna, like I like to go in the sauna, your output is going to be that much greater. But also some people naturally release more uh, water, right? Some people just do sweat more than others. Uh, and some people find it harder to sweat. Like I've never been a huge sweater. I've had to really train my body to do it through things like exercise and sauna. Um, so right. can you just kind of explain, uh, like give a brief overview on minerals? Yeah, yeah. And you know, this is, um, this is a funny thing where, how do, I, how do I dig into this and do it in a succinct way? So. I've been eating a low carb diet for like 23 years, you know, and I, I've done some little forays here and there kind of, kind of looking at different things, but I'm a biochemist. I understand the metabolism side of things pretty well could, you know, do citric acid cycle, you know, uh, succinate plugging into the TCA cycle, all that type of stuff. But, um, if one is eating a low carb diet and, and it's medically prescribed, you will be prescribed uh, about five grams of sodium per day because trained medical providers in this space understand that there is this thing called the naturesis of fasting, that low carbohydrate diets or, or low insulin states, either fasting or low carbohydrate diets, cause the body to shed sodium and, and it, by consequence also uh, uh, shed body water. And so I didn't know that. And even though I've never really been swayed by the literature suggesting that uh, sodium was this primary driver of uh, hypertension and, and therefore cardiovascular disease. And hypertension is a really big deal. It's a huge deal. But I've for 20 years been of the opinion that it was mainly driven by insulin resistance. And when we are insulin resistant, we tend to upregulate the production of a hormone called aldosterone and, and other hormones. And that elevation in aldosterone causes the body to retain sodium. And this is the primary driver of, of uh, hypertension. And low sodium diets don't really mitigate hypertension all that much. It'll bring blood pressure down a little bit, but it, ironically, it doesn't really, it does not in like a dose dependent fashion reduce blood pressure. So it, it leaves you wondering what is really going on there. And so, um, so sodium potassium pumps are 
the root or the fundamental currency of life. If, if folks remember, you know, high school or college biology, where we're talking about the TCA cycle or Krebs cycle, every nerve impulse we have, every muscle contraction is driven by the changes in sodium potassium status inside and outside of cells. That's the way that the nerve impulses that we produce are, are manufactured and whatnot. And so any disturbance in our sodium potassium level, primary electrolyte status can really influence the way that we think, the way that our muscles contract, the way that, uh, you know, literally all of our, our physiology functions. And an, an interesting piece of all that is that some epidemiological, but pretty well done research suggests that uh, uh, all cause mortality, morbidity mortality, seems to be at a low ebb at about five grams of sodium intake per day. And there's kind of a U-curve where at less than five grams per day, and particularly at, at two grams and less per day of sodium intake, morbidity and mortality is quite high. And then as you start getting above five grams of sodium per day, it increases, morbidity and mortality increases, but it's a much flatter curve. You have to get out to nearly 10 grams of sodium intake per day to be as at risk for uh, death and disease as somebody who's only consuming two grams of sodium per day. So, And what would that look like? Like, Because uh, in, in, in a processed food situation, this wouldn't be that difficult to achieve, would it? That would be super easy to get. Yeah. yeah. And that's really the rub here is that processed foods are quite easy to, to get that, you know, a significant amount of um, uh, sodium, even things like uh, meat sticks and jerky, which I'm a, I'm mm. a big fan of, but you can, uh, an average serving of, uh, of say like a, a good Italian salami or something like that, like a very reasonable serving is a gram of sodium, yeah. which can be fantastic for someone eating a low carb diet and can be kind of counter productive if somebody's eating a, a mixed, highly processed diet. And it, it's worth mentioning that 75, 80% of the sodium that folks get dietarily is from processed foods. And one of the problems that occurs when people clean up their diet, and it doesn't matter whether they go paleo or vegan or keto or what have you, is that minimally processed foods have very little sodium. Mm. So people will go from a, an overfed state, high insulin levels, retaining lots of sodium and therefore lots of water. And then if you shift at all towards a less processed diet, you will tend to lose weight, insulin levels will drop and we will uh, retain less, less sodium and less water. The lower the carbohydrate intake, the more profound that that, that process is. But what's interesting is somebody who's deep, who is insulin resistant, potentially overweight, uh, hypertensive, they don't really need to add sodium, like doing something like Element isn't really going to help them at all. It may in fact even be a, a, you know counterproductive. But as soon as folks start eating better, they, they almost immediately need to increase their sodium intake because they don't tend to get the, the same magnitude of sodium uh, uh, with that minimally processed diet. And the minimally processed diet just causes less of a stimulus to retain sodium. So you're, you're kind of losing the sodium uh, in two different ways. And you alluded to this early on, there's a massive spread in, um, say, just like sodium loss from sweating. 
And in general, women tend to not lose as much sodium due to sweating as, as men do. Although, it, again, within the bell curve of a population, you can have a woman who loses more sodium than most men. But in general, women tend to be more efficient with their sweat. It tends to be smaller in the droplet size, and it's actually more uh, uh, thermically efficient at cooling the uh, females in, in a, like a, a dose response curve. Men tend to be less efficient with it, and, and there are certain men that are called hype, uh, super sweaters where they lose more sodium and more water, like up to 50% more. And we've done some work with uh, uh, like National Hockey League individuals. These are pretty big guys, they're 200 pounds, 200 plus pounds, not, not huge, but they will lose 10 grams of sodium and 10 pounds of water in the course of a, a practice or a, a game. Whoa. It's a massive wow. amount. And if they don't And 10 pounds that, of water. 10 pounds of water. Oh my God. It's just, it's just a, you know, I'm not a big guy, but I've weighed my, my jujitsu gi before and after a two hour session and my gi will be five pounds heavier. Wow. With with sweat, it's pretty pretty gross, wow. but but you know I mean it's a huge shift yeah, in, huge in fluid shift. balance and whatnot. Yeah, and so we are told for health reasons to consume less than two grams of sodium per day, and if people are diligently doing that and they are pretty physically active, they will be behind the curve all the time. And the way that they will make up the difference in the, uh, the sodium and, and also the potassium to some degree is pulling it out of their bones. Mm -hmm. And so a possible primary driver of osteoporosis may be uh, uh, inadequate sodium intake, especially in a more active population. So again, I know I kind of bounced around mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of different spots there, but I, I guess some of the key takeaways include um, the the driver of hypertension which is a really important feature of cardiovascular disease doesn't really seem to be sodium intake per se it seems to be elevated insulin levels from overeating overeating of refined carbohydrates and then also refined foods tend to have a lot of sodium with it when people clean up their diet and again it doesn't really matter what diet they eat they tend to reduce both their carbohydrate load or their insulin load and also their uh, the sodium intake. And the lower the carbohydrate intake with that dietary change, typically the more that people lose sodium, the more important it becomes for, for people to replace that, that sodium. And then from there, uh, the factors of heat, humidity, and physical activity level all will increase the, uh, the, the demands for you know, proper rehydration, basically getting adequate electrolytes and the um, the the uh, the fluids that we need for that. And it, it's worth mentioning, you know, when when I was a kid, there was still this kind of folklore around uh, athletes should do like a salt tablet and then just sip water to their satiety, and we didn't see the situation where, where uh, almost every marathon, triathlon, somebody gets sick, hospitalized, and occasionally dies because they, they uh, uh, overconsume water. They, they will experience a situation of hyponatremia. They will consume so much water that it dilutes their, their body's electrolytes and they can, can die from that. That never happened you know, before the 1980s, 1990s when 
it, it became disposed of you know eight eight ounce glasses of water per day and, and things like that. And uh, there was much more of a uh, a sense of how important sodium was. Interestingly, uh, previous, it, it, yeah, yeah, previously, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And I think it affects it, it changes as well, doesn't it, with women's menstrual cycles as to how Absolutely. well they regulate that. Yeah, very yeah. different in females. Um, you know what I found, and I think I think Dr. James D. Nicolantonio actually talks about this in, in Salt Fix, is that if you've taken out processed foods from your diet, a bit like the way your body has a good protein sensor, it also has quite a good sodium sensor. And I've mm-hmm. noticed that because if, for example, like I noticed by having the element um, minerals, I could work harder, but then if I, for example, had it and, and I hadn't um, worked quite as hard and I wasn't needing the minerals quite as much, then I just wouldn't be looking for salt in my food quite as much. So I noticed that, and it's very individual, and you can sit around a table and someone will go, oh, there's not enough salt. And I think that's individual because we have those sensors. And I think we can be guided, right? We have that inner intelligence. If you're not, it's this hyper palatability of foods, isn't it, in processed foods that have the salt, have the sugar that tricks us. So we end up over consuming. Whereas in reality, when you're cooking and preparing fresh, if you've already dosed up on minerals and you don't need them, you just won't feel the need to add quite as much. Whereas if you feel that you need to become more replete, you're a bit depleted, then you'll naturally add more into that cooking. That's what I've noticed. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. And it, it's it, it's a little bit um, woo-woo for me being a biochemist. And, you know, it's very unquantifiable and mm. and whatnot. But uh, there, there is actually great research looking at, at sodium appetite, like the, the desire to consume sodium. And as uh, both animals and humans, as they um, top off their sodium levels, they the, the desire for... Uh, sodium-rich foods plummet. It, it just really decreases. And if they are sodium depleted, the desire for sodium-rich foods and, and uh, more carbohydrate because the carbohydrate causes you to retain more sodium because of the, the spike in insulin and, and whatnot. So there's different ways to facilitate that, but it, it definitely, even interestingly, folks have noticed that they'll mix up elements and if they Let's say they just finished a workout and they, they it was hot. They sweat a lot. Their initial chugs on the the bottle of Element it only tastes sweet. Like they literally mm-hmm. get no salt flavor at all out of it. And then as they start getting through the bottom of the the bottle, they'll start oh it's starting to taste salty and maybe even to the point where it's kind of off putting and they're done. And so it, again, there, there's not fantastic science on this, but um, I think if people are not over consuming the hyper palatable cro- processed foods, which cause us to just overeat everything, if we're eating a more simple diet and, and we're relying on our, our flavor cues to drive us forward, that, that um, movement towards sodium or putting the brakes on it, I, I think is very powerful. It, it, it's something that is pretty well established. I mean, it, it's, Maybe worth mentioning that out of all of the different nutrients and micronutrients that we consume, you know, like B vitamins and, and uh, uh, you know, zinc and iron, all of these things have a flavor, but they only sodium is, is uh, of all the nutrients that we consume has a taste receptor for it specifically. So, you know, like sweet, salty, sour, umami, and, um, 
so much interesting stuff goes along with sodium-rich foods. It usually is protein-dense. It usually tends to be more nutrient-dense broadly. And then sodium itself is a relatively scarce you know, mineral in a natural setting. And so we have a, a really refined uh, you know, sense of taste for it. And there are amazing um, pictures and video of, of like uh, Ibex in the Italian Alps you know, that will go up these dams that mm. where there's, there's yeah, seepage yeah, through the dams and there's salt, you know, crystals and whatnot. And so uh, natural environment animals will do really amazing things to to make sure that they get adequate sodium. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. And they and the, the way they regulate their water is, is different as well. I think we sometimes, like, we are over-drinking it, right? I notice, like, if I look yeah. at my dogs, when I actually measure, I've got one small one, a Labrador and a, and a small one, in terms of their bowl, how much water you put in, and you think the Labrador's a good kind of 30, 35 kilos, so he's a decent size. They're not drinking actually anywhere close to the fluid intake that, that we as humans are doing, actually. It's, it's right. quite interesting uh, how they regulate right. it. Um, yeah. But before you go, one thing I just wanted you to share, because we didn't do in relation to the carb, because I think this will help people. In your book, you talk about the seven-day carb test. Uh, this is interesting experiment for people to do to understand their glucose sensitivity. Can you just explain that briefly? Yeah, it, it, it's really trying to get a sense of, it, and we stack the deck in a, a way that the carbs are not well represented, but we're, we're really trying to get a sense of, do you handle the glycemic load of the carbohydrate effectively? And also, are there any other um, kind of more subjective elements to it. You know, like my, my issue with um, lentils and kind of an, an immune response to it. And what we generally recommend is that folks do the test at the same time every day for a week. Doesn't have to be a week, but that, that's, a, that's a, a nice way to do it. And we, we recommend that you do it first thing in your day because exercise and stress and different variables can change the way that we respond to a, a given food. And then we generally recommend about 50 grams of effective carbohydrate from a, a given food. If we're talking about like a fruit like apples or something like 50 grams of carbohydrate from apples, uh, people will be shitting like a goose. I was gonna say, that'd be quite so difficult. Probably, <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably cut that in half. But um, you know, if we're talking rice or bread or, or something like that, then the, the 50 grams is pretty accessible but we consume it and ideally we check our blood glucose before consumption of the carbohydrate, um, one hour after consumption of the carbohydrate and then two hours after consumption. And we look at both the total magnitude of blood glucose level and then also uh, subjective features like, do you feel foggy headed? Do you get any GI disturbances? Do you get any type of like, you know, joint inflammation and things like that? And, and again, not everybody will um, have poor glycemic response to certain things like, like myself with lentils, but occasionally they get kind of an autoimmune response with these carbohydrates. But ideally, in uh, uh, U.S. numbers, we're, we're seeing um, uh, ideally below 115 um, uh, milligrams per deciliter. And uh, if we divide that by 18, then we, we you know, so... I think like about three, three point something. We, we want to keep it below in more um, European numbers. And if- yeah, So 6.3, you want to keep it below. So you're okay. getting a little bit, but not. And this is just so people understand. So it's about 50 grams 
regardless, men and women are going to do the same experiment. So it's not in relation to your own body weight or. So, you know, that's one should. It, 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 well, because it was a book and it was kind of a, you know, if you start introducing too many variables, yeah, it starts difficult. getting kind of challenging. But Nikki is is significantly smaller than I am. And so, but ironically for her, we'll eat 50 grams of carbohydrate. My blood sugar will go to 200. Hers will go to 115. So even though she's smaller than I am, she has a better blood glucose response. But you, you could easily make the case if you have a small female, large male, that there, there may be Slightly some disparity different. there. But just for simplicity's sake, I just kind of said 50 grams across yeah. the board. What folks can do with that, though, like just because your blood, let's say your blood glucose goes a little bit above what we would like to see. All that that tells us probably is maybe you need a, an average serving should be a little bit smaller than 50 grams. Maybe it's 30 grams. It's kind of the, the upper limit, which is still you know, with like white rice, that's a nearly a cup. It's two two thirds of a cup of rice. It's not a massive serving, but it's also not a, a paltry serving. Uh, a little bit of exercise will improve the, you know, postprandial blood glucose response. Some fat, some protein will typically modify the way that, that the blood glucose response occurs. So the, the big takeaways for many people you know, for some folks like myself, it's kind of like, okay, carbs are just not my friend. Like I have to be really careful with them. It seems to be kind of a universal thing. For other people, they notice that some carbs work better than others. Uh, some carbs work better at, with certain timing or a certain setup. Like if you're gonna go for a walk after your meal, then maybe you can get away with a little bit more sourdough bread or white rice or, or something like that. Or you make sure to have at least 50 grams of 30 to 50 grams of protein with it. And that ends up mitigating the total, mm. you know, magnitude and blood glucose response. But it just so often, to say it the other way, people rarely have a deep insight in what, what the real blood glucose response is to different foods for them. And also the, um, the potential for kind of immunogenic response, like like gut issues, mm. systemic inflammation, changes in, in neurological status, uh, you know, like fuzzy-headed, foggy-headed. And so I think it's a nice opportunity for people to look at that in isolation. And then we can make informed decisions about how we Definitely. want to respond to that. Well, with that, yeah. with that stress response you're talking about, that's what's interesting because actually, and, and by the way, what you're talking here is an unopposed carb, right? So if you're going to do the rice, Correct. it needs to be just the rice, no butter in it or anything. Yeah, so you get that. But it would be interesting to see because, for example, like if you were to compare white rice one day, which doesn't have the, the fiber, and then the next day you're going to do some lentils, which have fiber, which in theory should slow down that release, but you see a massive spike, then actually that would be indicative that maybe you are having a stress response to that food right? right because if yeah. on the day before it didn't massively go up with white rice then it's kind of like well why why is it doing that with lentils it's an interesting i think i'm going to be running this experiment rob on myself yeah and, and you know where this came from i didn't just just cook this up this was inspired by some work that came out of the uh, weitzman institute in israel and i want to say it was 2015 maybe 2016 there was an amazing uh, uh, research paper that was released that looked at the variability in glycemic response to folks eating different foods. And they took a, a thousand people and did a comprehensive gut microbiome test, uh, lipidology, like standard blood work, 
genetic screening, and then they started feeding these people different meals in general, mixed meals, and also carbohydrate-only meals. And these folks were wearing continuous glucose monitors. And what they found was just kind of fascinating because from person to person, historically, we've assumed that there was this very uh, straightforward idea of the glycemic load with the food, like the amount of effective carbohydrate and glucose uh, specifically um, would would really, uh, uh, you know, play out into how one's blood glucose would, would manifest. And there's some truth to that, but there was a huge amount of variation. Like they found that one person would eat a cookie that contained, you know, X amount of carbohydrate and they would have a very modest blood glucose response. And that same person would eat a banana and have a huge blood glucose response mm -hmm. and then vice versa. And so what they found was that from person to person, the carbohydrate response could be really different, uh, you know, depending on, on the, the source of carbohydrate. And then, um, you know, from one individual to another, the variability ended up being really remarkable. So it, it really made the case that we have to, um, to tackle this stuff in a, a highly individualized way. And what, what the real takeaway is what they found is that if folks ate in a way, either the amount or type of carbohydrate that kept their blood glucose from going too high, which also meant that it wouldn't go too low, if they did that, then they in general tended to not overeat. And one of the primary drivers of overeating is what they found was a high met, you know, initial uh, uh, displacement in blood glucose levels and then a crash in blood glucose would tend to cause people mm, to go back and eat more than really what they needed. And that would tend to also keep them on kind of a blood glucose roller coaster. And one of the things that, that was really kind of mind blowing for me is that there are people out there like my wife who can eat a significant amount of carbs. And this is a really important thing for folks to take away when we we get into these pissing matches about high carb versus low carb. The folks who do well on high carb have a blood glucose response that looks like me on low carb. Mm. They don't have my blood glucose yeah. response on high carb. They're not going to 200 or 205 and then crashing. They eat a significant amount of carbs and they're at 115, 120, maybe in, in you know, the the US numbers, and then they don't totally crater and crash on the back end of that. And so uh, it, at the end of the day, whether you do well on carbs or not on carbs, the way that this works well over time is that your total blood glucose displacement is not massive. That's yes. kind of the big takeaway. That's the key, yeah. Some people can get away with a lot of carbs and not have a, a massive delta in their blood glucose levels. And then people like me, I have to eat lower carb to keep that delta, you know, more modest. And I think that that is the, was for me, the real huge takeaway on this. And they ended up answering the question because we all know people that thrive on high carb diets and they're lean and they're active and, you know, everything works well. And then we definitely like, I am that person that just doesn't do that well on a really high carbohydrate diet, at least not serially and consistently. I can have kind of a punctuated feeding of carbohydrate, but if I, I do that too frequently, then I have problems. So yeah. globally, that's, that's kind of the benefit of doing something like the seven day carb test. And that's also where I had the idea for doing it was based off that Weizmann Institute research.
Yeah, I think it's a fantastic bit of self-research. Um, it's similar to high-fat diets, right? Some people will... I know that if I, I actually can tolerate a certain amount of carbs and if I don't have those and I go too high-fat instead, actually my body composition is very different. I'm very fat-sensitive yep. and I would say more fat-sensitive than I am carb-sensitive. Um, it's interesting. And I think you can do test your visceral fat as well and see what's being stored, right? Um, yep. to, to see how metabolically healthy you are. Oh, you shared so much. It's been amazing to chat to you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing this. And I know people can go and dive a lot deeper in your books. Please, can you link to where people can come and find you, The Healthy Rebellion and everything you and, and Nikki do? Yeah, uh, robwolf.com is kind of the, the hub for everything we have going on. Ever go there and they can find all your books, all your programs, everything yep. there. Cool. Amazing. We will link to that in the show notes. And what's the platform you're most active on on social? Would it be Instagram? Uh, all of probably them? Substack. Like I, I, um, I, I do some posting on Substack. Actually, I've been getting back into Twitter, fun, okay. funny enough, okay. um, with all the interesting goings on yeah. around Twitter. I've been a little bit more active there, but uh, I really tried to swear off social media. Like it's just so <laughs> uh, such low quality of interaction and and whatnot. And so I spun up a Substack, and yeah, uh, it's so interesting because I it, I don't charge for it. The Substack is is free. Um, we we have our paid healthy rebellion, you know, community, but the Substack is free, but just the process of someone entering their email address is enough of a barrier of entry that I haven't really gotten very many assholes in there. And so it's been great, really wonderful interaction with people. So I'll get an idea about something, I'll post it on there, have really great uh, uh, feedback. Uh, had the, the, the bummer about social media kind of going sideways for me is if you get a couple of thousand people that are really thoughtfully considering a topic, I can't stay on top of everything. Like I've yes. got a good background in this stuff. I have 20 years of experience, but you, you have a group of a couple of thousand people that are listening to all the podcasts and reading all the papers and everything. And I might have an idea and somebody will say, Hey Rob, I like what you're saying, but I think you've got this wrong. And have you thought about this? And I get and I'll check it out. Oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. And so you you immediately get smarter because of the people you're hanging out with. And that's really the uh, the shame of, you know, social media just kind of going on the skids because I, I loved interacting with people, you know, just sometimes, you know, locker room towels snapping each other in the back end, you know, on, on different things. But a lot of time it was just, I have this idea. What do you, you know, here's my thoughts on this. And then you would get feedback from people. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's not... But um, the Substack has been wonderful for me because I really do like chatting with people and, and uh, no matter how smart somebody is or how well-versed they are in things, you can't get everything right. And if you have a group of people that are as invested in you as you are in them, then it moves everything forward. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm blabbering like an idiot now, but I really enjoy the little bit of stuff I do on my Substack and that's free. It's wide open. All that folks need to do is put an put a email in there to sign up for it and they're, they're off and running. Amazing. And they go to, where do they go yeah. to do that? Uh, Robwolf.substack.com. Amazing. Yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you so cool. much for coming on the show. It's been really fun chatting to you. Huge honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources, and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. 
You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimise your mind, body and lifestyle. 